you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. So we're talking about what is legalism. And I just want to put this back up this week. We did it last week. What exactly is, we say legalism, and you hang out in Christian circles long enough, you're going to hear the word legalism. Legalism is an idea that manifests itself three different ways at least. First of all, there's something we call salvation legalism. Salvation legalism, when Christians talk about legalism and they're thinking in this category, they're thinking, what can I do to earn God's favor? What are the good works that I've done that might outweigh my bad? Or maybe I do one extraordinary act, like when you turn the faucet on and all the water comes out. What can I do that will just help God pour his grace out on my life? Maybe I can be baptized. Maybe I can die a martyr's death. Maybe if I commit my life to God in some way. So there's this category when we talk about legalism of salvation legalism. How can I earn the favor of God? That's one element of legalism. Other times when people use the word legalism, they're talking about what's called rules legalism. Rules legalism is when we take our ideas, our ideas, and we elevate them to the level of God's ideas or God's word. And the Pharisees, of course, did this. For example, with the Sabbath. They had all these ideas about how you observe the Sabbath. You could only walk so far. You couldn't eat anything bigger than, I think, a fig um, you know, one of the Sabbath rules says something along the lines of you can't take a bath on the Sabbath because if you happen to spill water on the floor, you're going to be tempted to clean the water, and that's working on the Sabbath. So there's all kinds of man-made, women-made rules, right? People making rules, and we're elevating these. One of them we see in this passage that I just read. Jesus sat down to dine with the Pharisees. They were astonished that he did not first wash his hands. That's not in the Bible. That is something the Pharisees just invented over time. And so that's rules legalism, where we want our ideas or elevate our ideas to the value of God, where where God's word is. Sometimes the third way we use the word legalism is what we'll call tone legalism. This is just when we have a condescending tone. Maybe we feel morally superior to other people. And so in Luke 18... There's a Pharisee that says about a a tax collector, God, I thank you that I'm not like this person over here. This terrible condescending tone where there's just all kinds of feelings of moral superiority. Or remember the elder brother, right, in Luke 15? It's kind of a classic example. The prodigal comes home, and the elder brother is just looking down his nose at the prodigal. Ah, you're going to give him a party? You've never even given me a party. There's just no grace in this guy's heart. That's tone legalism. So those are the three ways in Scripture. When you hear the word legalism, it's used usually one of these three ways. Uh, I think of it something like H2O. H2O comes in a lot of different forms. It can be water. It can be vapor. It can be ice. It's still H2O. So it is with legalism, salvation, rules, tone legalism. At the end of the day, legalism is when we're walking out of step with a relationship with God. We've stepped off the path of grace, and we're kind of living by our own strength and living by our own efforts. And so there's three ways to do it. I won't rehash all we said last week, but we were talking about what are the marks of legalism. Number one, judgmentalism, which we already talked about last week. 
Number two, addition. We start to add rules. We start to add ideas to, um, to God's word. Number three, we called it focus. Legalism gives attention to the externals at the expense of the internals. And I want to pick it up here. Here's the fourth mark of legalism. We'll call it proportion. Major on the minors and minor on the majors. Look at verse 42 with me. Look at the first woe. But woe unto you Pharisees, you tithe the mint and the rue and every herb, and you neglect the justice and love of God. These you ought have done without neglecting the others. So what are they doing? What are the Pharisees doing here? They're minoring on the majors and they're majoring on the minors. The problem with the Pharisees here, among other things, is this is a soul that's out of balance. Can you see that? It, it, it's the, the problem here is not that they tithe on mint. Tithing on mint is fine. Nothing wrong with that. But they're doing that at the expense of some other things. They're minoring on the majors and majoring on the minors. The problem is Jesus is describing a soul that's out of balance. A, a life that's out of balance. So here's what I want you to picture. This is what I mean by out of balance. Let's say somebody's riding their bike down Danbury Road. It's a mountain bike. I don't know. But in this mountain bike, the handlebars are two inches wide, just like this, you know. And the front tire is 26 inches, and the back tire is three inches. And you know those little reflectors on the back? What are they, like two by two inches? This is two feet by two feet, right? What do we have there? We have a bike that's out of balance, It's not that any one thing is necessarily wrong with the bike. Doesn't a bike have reflectors? Doesn't a bike have handlebars? What, you don't like reflectors? You don't like handlebars? What's the matter with you? No, those things are out of balance. So I have here, I have a button-down shirt. I wear a button-down shirt today, right? What if one of my buttons was 12 inches in diameter? Big button like this, right? And you came up and said, why is your button so big? And I'd say, what, you don't like buttons? What's your problem with buttons? What are you, a legalist or something like that? No. What that is, it's a shirt that's out of balance. A shirt is a good shirt because the buttons are in proportion. And a bike that has things in proportion is going to ride well. The problem with the Pharisees here, it's not necessarily what they're doing and not doing. They're doing some things that they need to do more of and other things at the expense of other things. They're riding down the street with a two-foot-by-two-foot reflector. That's what's happening. And it's not that they're tithing on the mint. Jesus talks about, he commends that. He says you should keep doing that. But it's a life that's way out of balance. Legalism has a way of putting your life out of balance. Legalism has a way of having you pick your favorite verse in the Bible and interpreting everything else through that verse. Where that's the only verse that you ever think about or the only idea that you ever think about. And everything you think theologically is run through the grid of whatever that verse is. And so somebody comes up to you and says to you, don't you think you're overdoing it? And you say, what? You're not concerned about? Name your favorite verse. There's truth to what we're saying. We're just maybe a little bit out of proportion. And so if Jesus went up to the Pharisees and he said to them, you tithe on the mint, but you neglect justice, you neglect love. They would certainly turn back, what, you don't want us to tithe on mint? What's wrong with that? Again, it's a life that's out of balance. It's a life that's out of proportion. And that's what legalism tends to do. We major on the minor and we minor on the majors. As Christians, 
I've been thinking about this this week. It's, it's, not, it's not enough for us to be right. We also have to have the right proportions of things. And we have to be careful about not just taking our favorite idea that we like and letting that outshine everything else. We have to keep God's proportion. What God calls really important, that ought to be really important to us. What God says is important, but maybe of lesser value, that ought to be important, but maybe of a little bit lesser value to us. It's not just enough to know what God says. We also have to think about what are the proportions that God is calling us to. So here's an example, if you, the passage out of Titus. This is Titus 1, it's not Titus 2 that was read. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. You know what that means? That means someone in the church went to these Old Testament laws, and they picked their favorite verse, and they made a religion out of it. For they are unprofitable and worthless. And then he says this, for as the person who stirs up strife, that means the person that is dividing the congregation over their pet idea, Warn them once, then twice, then have nothing to do with them. In the old King James, that word heretic comes up there. A heretic is not necessarily somebody in the New Testament that comes up with error, so to speak. It's someone whose life is terribly out of proportion. They have one idea, and they think that idea ought to overrule all the other ideas. So we have to be careful about this. I once heard a story, it's apocryphal, of course. The devil's walking along with another demon, and He sees a man ahead of him down the road, and the man picks up something shiny. What did he find? And the devil says, he found a piece of truth. The junior demon says, does it bother you that he found a piece of truth? To which the devil says, nah, I'll see to it that he makes a religion out of it. And that's sometimes what we do if we're not careful. I'm just going to give you a practical thought, all right? Because I have to work this through in my own mind. How do I keep proportion as a pastor and a Christian? There are three things that I've done over the years, and I've tried to do this. We try to do this as a church. Three things that not only help you to exalt truth, but help you exalt it in the right proportions. I just thought I'd throw these out. Number one, I think it's good to preach cover to cover through books in the Bible. Uh, It's not a catch-all, but I will say this. You tend to have to deal with things that come up, and you can't avoid things you don't want to deal with. The other thing is you tend to take things in proportion. I mean, if God's love comes up 50 times like it does in the book of 1 John, you're going to talk about it 50 times. Or if the judgment of God comes up several times like it does a lot in Matthew, for example, you're going to pick it up there when you go through. And so it not only helps you get the whole counsel of God, it tends to help you get things in proportion. A second thing, and I'm just kind of speaking uh, as a pastor here, I think it's important that we as Christians stay in touch with church history. Because things that seem really big to us right now may not be such a big deal to the rest of Christianity, you know, throughout all the ages. It's good for us to stay in touch with church history. I want to know what the Greek church said, you know, in the second century. I want to know what the Latin church said in the fifth century. I want to know what the Protestant reformers said in the 18th century. It's not like any of us for, you know, is infallible or anything like that, but you tend to get balance and proportion when you look through the scope of church history. 
you can see what other Christians and other eras have considered importance and of lesser importance. And that can at least challenge you. The second thing is, I think you need to let Christians of other denominations speak into your life. Right? We can't just listen to Baptist churches. You know, we have to listen to other gospel preaching churches from other denominations and, frankly, other cultures. So I'm going to give you one example. This is just one. Every time I preach through a book in the Bible, one of my commentaries is usually by a foreign writer. Uh, it could be an African theologian. It could be a Korean theologian. But I want somebody elsewhere in the world to tell me what they think that passage means. I don't want to just read 10 Americans and find out what they believe. And I try to find more than one. That's just an attempt to keep not only truth, but how do I actually keep it in proportion? That's just food for thought, okay? You you can disagree with any of those and love Jesus. That's just uh, my two cents. All right, the the fifth thing is this. We go from proportion. Number uh, five, people-pleasing. Legalism is like an attention-seeking child. Look at verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. Now, this is cool. Archaeology has actually uncovered some of these old synagogues. And they would have wooden benches, not as nice as we have here, but they would have these old kind of wooden benches that would line the synagogues. And then in the front, you would have stone seats. And those seats were actually pretty comfortable from what we're told. And the best seats were probably those stone seats. And so the Pharisees would go into the synagogue, they'd make a beeline for those stone seats. Not because they liked the seat, not because they liked to pay attention, but because they wanted everybody to see that they were the most spiritual people in the room. And then Jesus says, you like greetings in the marketplace. And so they would go around and try to get people to call them rabbi. You know, hey, rabbi! You know, and then they get the dopamine hit. You know, oh, I felt so good, he called me rabbi. Oh, teacher! Sometimes in the ancient world, they'd call the rabbi father. Hey, father, you know, and that would just give them a spike of adrenaline that somebody acknowledged them as a spiritual leader. This is like an attention-seeking child. And sometimes we get caught up in the trap of legalism. We become people pleasers. We're not concerned so much about pleasing God. We're concerned about pleasing other people. By the way, there's nothing wrong with being noticed. There's a great proverb that says, Let another person praise your work. Great. If another person comes up and says, job well done, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. Thank you. That's really kind of you, you know. There's nothing wrong with having a greeting where someone comes up to you and greets you and acknowledges you in a special way. The problem is when we have an idol of people pleasing. It's not just nice to be accepted by other people, but we're going to feel like, you know, life's not worth living if a certain group doesn't accept us. And I just want to point this out. This is where sometimes we Christians miss this. When we talk about people-pleasing, almost every one of us in here is doing this. We're all saying to ourselves, I don't care what people think. I don't care what people think. What we really mean is, I don't care what those people think. But there is a group that you are concerned about what they think. The Pharisees, here's what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, you want all the Romans to think well of you. They don't care what the Romans think about them. It's in the synagogue that they want to be noticed. You see? They want to be noticed by other Pharisees. They want to be noticed by other faithful Jewish people. Every one of us has a target audience. And and we got to be honest with ourselves about this. There's a good part of the world, we frankly don't care what they think about us. 
But there are some people that we just really need them to acknowledge us. If you're a musician, if you're a pastor, maybe it's a pastor musician. If you're an architect, maybe it's the architect community. If you're an athlete, maybe it's the athlete community. If you're a health person, maybe it's the health community. It could be anything like that. We all have this target audience. We crave people's attention in the most incurable way. Boy, if you haven't seen it, you should watch The Social Dilemma. Anybody watch The Social Dilemma? It's worth watching. Uh, It's a documentary on, on social media. There's an article I read, the author says this about the social dilemma. Having spent the past decade fine-tuning their now very smart algorithms, the brains behind Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, among other platforms have got us hooked. They use a a highly tuned attention extraction model. In other words, they are leveraging our desire for validation. That's what they're marketing, our desire for validation. And every time somebody hits your like button, you are getting a dopamine hit. That's what the social, that's what the article's teaching. I'm not saying that you should get off these platforms. I'm on Sundays, but don't, but know what you're doing. Realize that when you put a post out there and somebody hits like, and then all of a sudden something happens, and so, that's a dopamine hit. That's what's happening. You are addicted to some degree to the attention that other people are giving you. And again, there's nothing wrong with being liked, right? It's when we cross the line to feeling like we have to be liked. When we make an idol of it. When if people don't greet us in the marketplace, if we don't have the best seats in the synagogue, then we just find like maybe life's not worth living. Uh, There's an author by the name of Will Storr. He wrote a number of books. One of them is The Status Game. It tells a great story in there about a prisoner. This is a prisoner who served a long prison sentence. And somewhere in there, he became a legal expert. And he learned how to push back against the brutality of the guards. So he not only filed lawsuits on behalf of him, but all the other prisoners would go to him for legal advice. I don't know, it's like the godfather of prison or something like that. And uh, what, what Will Storr says is the, now obviously the advantages on the outside are more. You get to, to walk on the beach with your, your fiance. He could live in his own house. He could go anywhere he wanted. And yet for, for, for about a decade, this man worked against his own release. He could have been released from prison. He didn't want to be released from prison. Why didn't he want to be released from prison? Because on the outside, he's a nothing. But on the inside, he's a somebody. And that pulled him to the point where he worked against his own release. When he was finally released, within a short period of time, Will Storr says he had a nervous breakdown. To me, it sounds like he was a child star who kind of you know, lost the fame, so to speak. What does it say that many among us, if not all, would rather be celebrities behind bars than average people on the outside? That's got to say something about humanity, doesn't it? That's how much we strive for the opinions of other people. We are the Sneetches and Dr. Seuss, if you've ever read the book. The problem is, and here's the problem, even when you know this, it's really hard to break. Even when you know you're a people pleaser, it's hard not to seek people's approval. There, because there's something in our DNA where we just feel like we need it. And I just want to tell you, this is where the gospel intersects so powerfully on this point. And it's this, that, that thirst for approval for Christians it's found in Christ. It's found in God. In other words, when you become a Christian and you walk in a relationship with God, 
It's nice to be recognized by other people, but you're not going to die if it doesn't take place because you have all the approval your soul needs from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when the Father looked down on Jesus and said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, we hear those words in the gospel. And when you have the approval of the God of the universe, all of a sudden your coworkers' approval just isn't that important. The gospel intersects powerfully for Christians at this point. Where if we walk in the gospel, we walk in that relationship with God, it frees us from the feeling that other people have to like us. It frees us from people-pleasing. It frees us from having to get the greeting in the marketplace or get the, you know, the synagogue best seats. All of a sudden, that target audience that you and I need their approval, it's nice to have their approval, but if they don't give it, that's okay. I'm not going to die. Gospel changes everything in that regard. Okay, number six, influence. Here's the problem. They're a destructive influence. Verse 44. Woe to you, you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. So in the ancient world, there in Palestine, in Israel, uh, they, would, they would have these graves. Sometimes they had graveyards, but a lot of times they would just bury people and put a grave there, like a little stone or something like that. And as you know, in a Jewish culture, if you, if you touch a grave or you touch a dead body, you yourself become ceremonially unclean. And what if you find out later that you walked over an unmarked grave? So what they would do, especially when people would come in from all over for Passover and things like that, they would take this white chalk and they would chalk up those graves really good so you wouldn't accidentally mark walk over one of those graves. Those are, and, and Jesus says the Pharisees, they're like unmarked graves. They have a very quiet, secret, corrosive influence. The people that come in contact with them are becoming unclean because they're taking their ideas and running with them. He says, and therefore, they're a destructive influence, a very silent destructive influence. The Pharisees, of course, are marked by misguided zeal. And they're very passionate and they're very sincere, but they're passionate and sincere about a lot of the wrong things. You know, I once heard a story about a guy that went all the way up the ladder only to realize that he's leaning against the wrong wall. That was me, by the way, once, and it was recent. That's why it's in my mind. I love this verse. You know what Paul says to the Galatians? He's talking to the legalists in Galatia. Here's the old King James. They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you so that you might affect them. Now listen to the language. I know that sounds archaic. They zealously affect you. They are going after you with a whole bunch of sincerity, but not well. It's not a good idea. They are very passionate, but they're passionate about the wrong things. And that's the problem. That's why Paul says, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. In other words, we're going we're gonna to hold out. We're going to hold out the word of God lest we be successful at the wrong things. The Pharisees are successful at the wrong things. The wrong things. My grandfather told me a story when I was a kid. You know, I think he was born in the 19-teens. And this is before the banks were insured by the, the federal government. And he said, he, 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 you know, he heard a story of, of, of a guy that this was his retirement plan. He, every time he got a couple of dollars, the old paper money, he, in his sheetrock there, his old uh, uh, plaster, he put a little cut and he just slipped the money there. A couple of dollars every week behind the wall. And then at the end, when he was going to retire, he'd just pull the wall out and all the money would be there. 
And my grandfather said he did this for like 20 years, you know. He'd come back from laying bricks and put a couple of dollars behind the wall, and that was going to be his retirement plan. And he said when a man came back some 20, 25 years later, he cut open the wall and he realized that it was all shredded because rats were in the wall. Terrible story. Tremendous amount of sincerity, tremendous amount of effort, all in vain. Paul said, don't, don't let your church, don't let your life be like that. Don't succeed at the wrong things. Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. The legalists here, the Pharisees, have a destructive influence. Their influence is so destructive that in Galatians 2, you know what Paul says? Even Barnabas got carried away with them. That's how destructive... Even Barnabas, I'm quoting here, even Barnabas. Barnabas is one of the most godly people in the early church. I don't know of a single thing negative about Barnabas that said, even that guy, when he walked across the unmarked grave, walked away with some bad ideas. They're a destructive influence. Number seven, burdens. We're going to move quick. Unreasonable expectations on others. All right, verse 45 One of the teachers answered him, Teacher, you're insulting us. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also. You load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The legalists here are placing unreasonable burdens on other people. Now let me just kind of step back, if I can, for a minute. And I'm going to move quick on this point, but it's important for us to understand that this is why the Pharisees were Pharisees. The Pharisees started off in a very good place. We need to understand that. It's not like somebody woke up one day and said, let's come up with a big list of ideas that we can oppress people with. That's not how Pharisees started. What happened is this. God brought them back from exile. The people back from exile, they knew they were in exile because they disregarded the law of God. They didn't observe the Sabbath. They didn't observe the Ten Commandments. And when they came back from exile, the group of Pharisees got together and they said, we're never going to let this happen again. There's no way. In fact, we're going to set up a bunch of rules to make sure we don't sin. And what they did is they put a fence around the law. And so they built all these little man-made, woman-made ideas. So just in case, just in case you get too close to the rules, And so, of course, uh, the ceremonial washing of the hands is one here. I mean, what happens if you're in a marketplace and you brush up against a Gentile? Then you're ceremonially unclean. But what if you don't know that you brushed up against them? Therefore, we better wash our hands before we eat. You see what that is? They're guarding against the slippery slope. Or what about the Sabbath? What if, we, what if we disregard the Sabbath? Well, let's set up a bunch of rules so there's no possible way we can disregard the Sabbath. The Pharisees started off with very good intentions, right? But the road to hell is paved with, yeah. I think it's a good thing to guard against a slippery slope. The Proverbs give you a number of ways to guard against the slippery slope. But you have to be, there's a danger of the danger of the slippery slope because there's always two sides to the mountain. It's good to have little rules in your life. It is to keep you from violating the law of God. I don't think that's bad at all. I have things like that. There's th- I don't tell you all of them, but there's things I do, there's things I don't do. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But when you start to think that those ideas are equal to the law of God, that's where we have a problem. 
And that's what happens with the Pharisees here. They start off in the right place, but before you know it, they have a whole big set of rules and regulations that are just oppressive to people. All right, number eight. I'm going to give you eight and nine real quick. History. Uh, The legalists claim to love the prophets that they stand against. Verse 47. Woe to you, you build tombs for the prophets. Your father's killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you built their tombs. And so they, they believe that they are on the right side of history. In reality, they are not. And I will simply say this. We modern people, we tend to do the same thing. We tend to look back and we tend to say to ourselves, I would be on the right side of history. Ah, you know, this is why we judge our parents and our grandparents so harshly, don't we? Because if you were in their shoes, you would do it differently. (laughs) You wouldn't sin the way they sinned. They were hypocrites. We always, when we look back on history, put ourselves in the seat of the righteous But Jesus tells them, don't do that. Don't make that mistake. You, Pharisees, have shed the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. A to Z. Now, in English, it's A to Z. But in the the Hebrew Bible, Abel is the first martyr. Zechariah is the last martyr. And he says, you've killed all the prophets in between, from Abel to Zechariah. Legalism claims to love the prophets it stands against. The last one is obstacles. Verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers. And this one sums it up. You've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those that were entering. The legalist here is not only not entering the door, they're laying in front of it so nobody else can enter in. And that's why legalism is so dangerous. Now, here's what I want to close on. I want to close on this. I want to close on the one word Jesus repeats. Verse 42, woe to you Pharisees. Verse 43, woe. Verse 44, woe. 45, 47, woe. 52, woe to you lawyers. What does it mean when Jesus says woe? Jesus here is not picking on the Pharisees. He's lamenting the Pharisees. We have to be careful that we don't become the Pharisee to the Pharisees. The legalist to the legalist where we say, well, I'm glad I don't have moral superiority feelings like this guy over here. What do we do when we do that? Exercising moral superiority. We lament legalism. And when Jesus says, whoa, he is calling the Pharisees to turn away from their legalism. And I think that's the same call for us today. That we turn away from trusting ourselves. We turn away from creating our own rules. Remember the third one? Turn away from the tone of moral superiority. We repent and turn to Christ. Jesus here is calling the Pharisees to a relationship with God. He's not just calling them names to call them names. He wants them to come in. He wants them to repent. He wants them to have a relationship with God. I'll close with this. We're not there yet, but in Luke 15... When the elder brother, who is the ultimate Pharisee, is looking down on the prodigal, never forget, for you that know the story, at the end of the story, what does the father do? He still goes out to the elder and pleads with him to come in. And as a church, I hope we have that love and that mercy, not just for the prodigals, but also calling the Pharisees to repentance, letting them know that God wants a relationship with all of us. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. 
pray that you touch our hearts today. Deliver us, Lord, from the legalism that blocks the way for ourselves and others. And help us to turn to Christ, for the gospel changes everything. Glory belongs to you in Jesus' name. Amen.